Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. For anyone who wants to make money and make a difference, grow and leverage your enterprise better, get more done in less time, outsource everything and create your ideal lifestyle. And now, your host, eight times best-selling author and double world record holder, Rob Moore. Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. This is Rob Moore here and uh, I'm a little bit like a little boy at Legoland. Uh, I've flown over to Geneva, Labrassus, and I am looking across at a very charming man who's been charming us while we've been setting up. He's been doing some singing for us and everything. And I'm very excited to announce, I know you know because I've been telling you this is going to be happening for a long while. I have with uh, me the CEO of Audemars Piguet, Francois Benamia. How's the pronunciation? Benamia or Benamia? Not too bad, but actually it's the best introduction ever. Okay, good. So it's okay that I didn't quite get the pronunciation of the name. No, right? but you're good, you're good. Okay, thank you. Welcome, thanks for taking the time to do the podcast. For people who maybe don't know you, could you kind of tell everyone who you are and what you do? Yes, so I've been working for 22 years for Audemars Piguet. I didn't graduate at anything. I became a professional golfer when I was 18 years old. I played the tour for six years, then worked in the fashion industry for six years and then Audemars Piguet. Okay, so you didn't qualify as in no um, university or anything like that? Oh no. no, I was a bad, bad student. Okay, but you still got CEO here? Yeah, because maybe I'm not too stupid. Okay. So does that make you kind of an entrepreneur, even though you're... Definitely. Yeah. So you see yourself as an entrepreneur. And I look always at Audemars Piguet, not like if it was my own company, obviously, because we are 1,500 people mm -hmm. uh, working for the same brand. But at the end, I always look at all the possibilities, but in an entrepreneurial way. Sure. Okay. And does that make Audemars Piguet different from other watch brands who are maybe owned by other bigger companies? I hope so, but the people that could tell you this the most are the clients who buy Audemars Piguet every day. Yeah. For me, if I say it, it's going to sound uh, pretentious. So but uh, I'm not say. interviewing them. Yeah. So <laughs> I can't ask them. I want, I want to believe it does. <laughs> He's just dropped the microphone. <laughs> okay. No noise. <laughs> no, no tapping. Okay, so I mean, I, f I feel like it does because obviously there's a lot of... Um, big companies behind some of the bigger watch brands who maybe have higher volume. Do you think the family essence comes through Audemars Piguet? Absolutely, every day. And it's, and it's also, I always say that today it's not a matter of being the biggest, it's a matter of being the fastest. We have to be very agile, we have to react uh, faster than ever. The world is not waiting for us. So every day we have to challenge ourselves and, and see it. But what we can do, what we can do better, what we could improve. And in the DNA of the company, if Jules, I always say, if Jules Audemars and Edouard Piguet were alive today, actually they were 25 years old, they would travel the world, be in the, the ultimate quest of the growl of the latest possible uh, complicated watch or impressive watch. But as soon as the watch would be actually done, they would move on to the next one. Sure. There is no standing still at Audemars Piguet. Mm -hmm. And could you give us an example of where you think that's been reflected in your products? I'm going to give you two examples. The, an example is it's a watch we released this year at the SHH. Mm -hmm. It was called the Concept Supersonary. Mm -hmm. We really, really brought the chiming mechanism to the 21st, maybe the 22nd century. Yeah. Because for almost 200 years, the chiming mechanisms were very 
personal. So yes, a watch could chime the time. You put your watch near your ear, and if you want somebody else to listen to it, he has to put it to his own ear. So you cannot share, argue together, the pleasure of listening to the watch chiming. With a concept supersonary, then we brought it to a complete different level where basically I could be here in the room, make the watch chime, and everybody in the room, and maybe outside of that room, would listen to the watch. Mm -hmm. So it, it has been a, a great, uh, I could I say, great uh, feedback from and the client and the other brands say that we really pushed the envelope very far. Yeah. Uh, we've released the watches starting in September. The watch uh, retails for half a million Swiss franc. Mm -hmm. So we're not talking about cheap amount of money. We're making only 50. And so far we released to the market 12 and 11 have been sold. So we are in good shape. Okay. And the second example? The second example is I met a woman who is a jewelry designer three years ago and she was wearing Audemars Piguet. And you know, jewelry design, she's got a special technique called the Florentine technique, which is a way to treat gold and to somehow hammer gold. And after several meetings with her, I asked her if we actually could use that technique on our watches. We launched the actual watch called the Rhino Frosted Gold in Florence a month and a half ago. So it's a watch for women. Funny enough, a lot of men love the treatment on the gold uh, as well. Mm -hmm. So it's not something you can do actually with a machine. The hand has to be very important in, in the process. And the result is funny because you look at the watch, it feels that it's fully set with diamonds when there is not a single stone on it. Huh. So it shines and sparkles like if it were fully set with diamonds mm -hmm. when there is not a single diamond on the watch. Sure. And women who have seen the watch have reacted extremely well. So yeah. we got to do the official global launch during the watch fair in Geneva in uh -huh. January. But we know for a fact that it's going to be a success already. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. So I've noticed a lot more ladies being interested in the brand. My fiance being one of them. I bought her a Royal Oak. What's her name? Uh, her name is Gemma. Gemma? Mm -hmm. Okay, we want to meet Gemma next time. Okay, great. She doesn't listen to my podcast though, so we can't, we can't give her a message, but um, I'm sure she would have loved to come. And also, um, my business partner's fiance is asking me to find uh, an Odomars PK for her. And say three years ago, five years ago, I was noticing ladies were wearing quite small watches, and then they seem to move maybe to Daytonas or some of the sort of slightly larger men's Rolexes. And now they seem to be moving, from what I'm seeing, to Royal Oaks, mm -hmm. which you must be happy about. Uh, is, is, is that just something I'm seeing or is that something that you're seeing as the brand? No, no, it's definitely happening. Uh, three, four years ago, we cannot say more. Now, don't get me wrong. We've been selling ladies watches at Audemars Piguet for a long, long time because the first ladies watch was released in 1894. Mm. So it's not something which we, we started to, to make only uh, four or five years ago. But that said, we've seen a shift towards Audemars Piguet, an important one for the last three, four years. We see more women and young women. The funny mm. thing is young yeah. women buy the watches everywhere. It's not a specific place where it would be only in the US or only Europe or only Middle East or only Asia. It's across the globe, mm -hmm. which is great news. Yeah. And we today ourselves are roughly 70, 30. Wow. But it's not really a 30 because a lot of women are also buying men's watches. Yes. Yeah. And this doesn't fall in the category of ladies' watches. Sure. So maybe we are even slightly higher. Yeah. Uh, we are developing more and more products for women every day. So you Why do you think that rise has happened? Do you, do you know one? It was a will on our end, first of all, to, to go back to where we were, because at one point the sales were 60-40, yeah. uh, I would say 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. So we lost a bit of ground and we said, no, there is no way. The Royal Oak has real legitimacy, but the millenary as well. And there are many more watches to come uh, in the future. So we put a special effort in communication, in branding, 
and in product actually mm. to really appeal to the new clientele. You um, work with Serena, is that right, Serena Williams? Sure. Has that helped? You can never definitely know if an ambassador, man or woman, is going to help. Meaning that I cannot say that Serena may just sell another hundred watches, but. When Michael made you help sell you one more. Yeah, yeah. Because we made a special limited edition. Yes. Okay, but, ah, but yeah. we know for a fact that when women saw Serena wearing the watches and express her uh, personal feelings about the brand, she convinced somehow women that Audemars Piguet was a great brand to wear. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. So, what would you say makes Audemars Piguet a unique brand? What makes you different? We want to look at ourselves uh, uh, as a brand who thinks differently and we never, we don't want to follow any kind of leads or, or trends. We want to create our own trends, want to write our own destiny, our own, own history. Mm. And uh, as I said before, we never settle. Mm. And it does appeal to a young audience because basically we push our limits as much as we can. Mm -hmm. As good as we could be on a specific product, the day after we are already thinking what could be done better. Sure. Does that make you un... How do you sit down and be proud of what you've done though, when tomorrow you've got to go on to the next thing? But you have to be proud for what you did the day before. Okay. That's good enough. Yeah. If you want to be a champion, and I come from the sports world, sure. yeah. okay, uh, you have to... The, the champion who have lasted a long, long time, when they tell you their stories, no matter how good they were, they were going back to the either the driving range mm. or to the gym or to anything and practicing, practicing to yeah. be even better and better. You cannot, you can win once, you can mm. be a champion once, but if you want to last for at least 10 to 20 years, you got to work extra like there is no tomorrow. Mm. That's the same thing for AP, but AP is now 142 years old. Yeah. So I say it's in the DNA of the brand to say, Let's be humble. We, are, we have to be proud when we release something that works mm. and uh, has got some success. But at the same time, let's remain humble enough to say there is another day to come. Very many high-end brands talk about this word brand, 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 luxury brand, brand. I don't think most people actually know what the word means. Mm. Uh, it's kind of like quite a, uh, a universal term. I'd love to know what you think the word brand means. The word brand, it's DNA, it's environment, what we stand for the values, the culture, it's many, many things. It's, the brand is like a big basket where you've got uh, what, uh, what's company, what's the company uses every day to uh, achieve what they want to achieve. Mm -hmm. So you have to put everything in there. The passion, the mistakes, the stupidity sometimes, <laughs> but at the same time, the talent, yeah. the, uh, the stories. When, when a brand is 142 years old, we mm. have stories and beautiful stories to tell, obviously. Yeah. And it doesn't go always smooth for 142 years straight. Mm -hmm. That never happens. Yeah. But that's a good thing about it. It means we can go up and down, but at the end, we are still sure. here, still in the hand of the founding families. And that's what the brand is all about. Okay. And what would you say has been, you referenced some good times and bad times since you've been head. What would you say has been some of the hardest times? The hardest time was not a, a hard time in terms of business because I took over in 2012 and we did record, 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 and 16 will be as well. So, so far it would have been five years of uh, good achievement. Mm. So we say that the, the team has to yeah. be rewarding accordingly because uh, we, we did a, a great job because mm -hmm. the economy and the, the, the overall business is not performing as well. As you know, yeah. the watch industry is suffering. They got to announce average or bad results for 2016 right. when we will still announce a growth. What? So we are doing things 
and you are performing a little bit better than the average. So why do you think you've performed well when you think the watch industry overall has it's been a bit hard? First of all, because we did a lot of, uh, I'm going to call this housekeeping four years ago, where we decided to clean our own collection, not as many references, not too many retailers, so less access to the brand. And we decided to cap also our production. So we reached 40,000 watches last year, mm -hmm. and I've announced everywhere that we're going to keep those quantities at that level, no matter what, for the next five years. Now, when you tell this to people, the instant response that we got from our clients was, finally, because I, at the end, I do believe that luxury is exclusivity, luxury is scarcity. Mm -hmm. You cannot keep increasing volumes left and right and every day like there is no tomorrow. Yeah. The watch industry grew like crazy for the last 10 years, but at one point it had, it had to stop. Yeah. And you don't want to see all these watches everywhere at the same time. Mm. So at one point you reach a number and you have to stabilize that number a little bit. Yeah. And that's I think why we're successful right now. And that must be a hard thing to do, to know that you can grow, but to, to cap it. Not really, because first of all, we are no, not a public company, yeah. so we don't have any quarters to report. So you can do what you want. We can do what we want. Mm -hmm. And we have shareholders and the family members say that their main goal is not to add 15 more percent in their revenue next year, is to make sure they're going to still be there in 15 years, 20 years, 50 years. Yeah. So when we discuss about budgets and evolutions, their main point is make sure that we remain relevant to yeah. the younger generation, remain creative, innovative, but think 50 years from now, right. not one or two. We yeah. don't care about one or two. Mm -hmm. They're not gonna buy a bigger house, they're gonna change their cars, they've had the same lifestyle for decades, and they will not change. Sure. So that helps a lot. But do you not want a bigger house and a bigger car? I do. Yeah. And I would get. <laughs> <laughs> so how do, you, how do you maintain innovation, growth, but not really focusing so much on the revenue. How do you do that without the revenue? But it's not without the revenue because actually the revenue keeps increasing. I'm going to give you one example. More expensive watches, for example. No, no, no. no. Okay. It, that could be one, yeah. but it's not the only reason. The other reason is we're shifting our business model from being a wholesale business to become a retail business. 10 years ago, we had only five or seven stores in the world. Mm. We have now 52 stores in the world. You mean now, your, your own boutiques? No, no, out of the 52, we own 18. Yeah. Okay, but the 18 stores that we own performed beyond well in 2016. When I say beyond well, we are talking about here, but more than a double digit mm -hmm. and high double digit mm -hmm. increase. Yeah. So we see more and more people every day going to the Audemars Piguet roof and say, we want to buy directly from you guys. Yeah. So the extra margin made from the wholesale to retail mm. brings the revenue up yep. without increasing the quantity of watches. Right. And why do you think they really wanted to buy straight from your boutique? We see this more and more, not only in the watch world. I mean, everybody wants the connection to the brands. Mm. And we're going to see this as a major evolution for the years to come, because at the end, who better than us can deliver an ideal sure. message? We are who we are and people love and buy our watches because of who we are. Yeah. So yes, we've had great partners and we got to keep some of them obviously but not as many as we used to you talked about this 50-year vision mm. um, can you share a bit of the vision then of ap sort of the, the you know taking your values forward and maybe where you're going to move and what what you're going to do i'm going to surprise you when i say we won't change much compared to what we do today meaning typical example are we going to make connected watches doubt i doubt it do you mean as in internet yeah, no, yeah. That's, Actually, not, that's, why, yeah. that's not us no. at all. Um, but it might have been 50 years. 
No, because if at one point something is connected, it will be through the strap or the bracelet, yeah. but never the heart of the watch, which is the movement. Right. The devil want to touch the movement and make it somehow connected, then there are people who are doing it better than us every day. Yeah. This is not in the DNA of the company. Right. And people, again, buy us because of the, where we come from and who we are. Mm -hmm. So we have to stay true to our values and exceptional mechanisms well put together in small quantities are who we are. Mm -hmm. That's one. Yeah. But when I said we're not going to change because we push boundaries every day. So we're going to adapt to the new world in terms of uh, the new technology that are coming now. Mm. I mean, we are at the crossroad of the biggest innovation time of mankind. Mm. Everybody talks about it yeah. with augmented reality, virtual reality, everything that comes. So maybe we use some of those things. Who knows? Mm. I think we will. Does that excite you, that? that a lot. The innovation? Sure, sure a lot. Yeah, me too. Yeah, because we've got a lot of watchmakers even though they could be sometimes 50, 60, or 70 years old, that have ideas about what could be true high-end watchmaking for tomorrow. Mm. So I always say at the end, the best is yet to come. Oh, you do, and you never tell us what that is? No. No, of course not. Okay. Nice try, though. Oh, yeah? That yes. All right. Why did the overall watch industry suffer then, do you think? I've always perceived that even in times of recession, high-end luxury boutique, you know, whatever, to, to the affluent market shouldn't really be as affected as much. But you say the watch industry was, so why do you, what, what could the watch industry learn from you? First of all, it's not only the watch industry, it's the luxury industry as a whole. Okay. And if you look at the global picture of the, of the luxury industry, some brands are, will have performed extremely well mm. and some brands will have gone down. Yeah. It's very simple. Again, we go back to the same basic rules. If you start to see too many of the same item everywhere, the notion of, of the true value mm. is not the same yep. one. Service, customer experience. There are brands better than others mm. about it. What do you bring really to your client besides buying a product, whether it's a bag, a pair of shoes, a watch, anything. So you cannot look today at saying, okay, because I made the most beautiful watch, it's gonna sell and I don't have to care about anything else. What we deliver as an experience when you purchase, after you purchase, if you have an issue with it, is extremely important and this is what we're spending a lot of efforts and money on actually. Sure. Okay. When audio equipment part one broke and we got onto audio equipment part two. And uh, wait until you and we go to three. Yeah, hopefully not. <laughs> then Tom's gonna to shoot himself. <laughs> yeah, by the way, there is a guy named Tom. Tom is a geek guy here in the room and he doesn't know how things work, but he made them work. <laughs> <laughs> well sometimes that's how innovation goes, isn't it? You're trying to do something you don't get it how you want to get it the post-it note it didn't work it was like a big huge innovation do you ever find that with your watchmakers that the you know, innovation through mistakes iteration actually not through mistake but last year so i'm walking the uh the, the place at the at the, at the factory and mm. I, I see a watch on one of our guys i say and i always look at people's wrist mm. no matter what it's mm. a disease so i say <laughs> what are you wearing Ah, yes, boss, we wanted to, uh, to tell you, but we worked on something, we stand off other guys, and it's a new skeleton version of the right oak, but we put a double balance wheel, say, what? Who did ask you to do that? And say, nobody, because I'm in charge of the product committee, mm -hmm. and I've got a product team. Nobody was aware. So the, watch the watchmakers on their own decided to work on something which is new, a new version of our skeleton right oak, Long story short, when I said, because at the end there was one question, does it work? Mm. And they say, boss, you got to be very pleased. It works even better than the other one. Say, wow. Mm. So we launched the watch mm. and actually 
So we, we could deliver to the market only roughly 300 watches in stainless steel and 200 in gold. And they are going for more than retail on the internet as we speak. Mm. So not something that came from my brand, not something yeah. that came from the product committee brand, something that came from my watchmakers mm. that didn't follow any rules, yeah. okay, and did this on their own and it was a success. Mm. And that happened to us before, in 1978, when we launched the first perpetual calendar. Yeah. The watchmaker thought about it themselves without sharing it with the management then. Mm. And one day he put the watch on the, on the CEO's desk and say, we should bring this to the market. And mm. we sold a lot of them for two decades. Right. Uh, and that was the beginning of the great story for perpetual calendars. Yeah, is it you that says to master the rules first, you must break them? It's the reverse. To okay. break the rules, you I must- I should have done my research them. better, shouldn't I? Yeah, actually like you on that one, you suck. It's yeah, it's okay, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm not perfect, it's all right. Can you say that again? Can you say, you can get it right? Yes. To break the rules, yeah. you must first master them. Right, okay. Could you say that again now? To break the rules, first you must master them. Do you have any issues with your ears right now? Or mm, I think okay, I must so do. I'm say it one more time. Okay, fine. To break I didn't, I failed at school as well. Yes? Yes. But worse than me, I guess. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, to break the rules. To break the rules. You must first master them. You must first Master them. Clear? Okay. Good, we're good. So where I was trying to lead with this, so some of your watchmakers have mastered the rules and, and then slightly breaking them maybe, doing things that weren't necessarily in their direction? Sure. And, and we do encourage. you allow them a bit of that? No, no, we encourage. We push people actually to do that more and more. Yeah. Say, guys, if you've got crazy ideas, bring them. Yeah. It's not because you've got a boss and another boss mm. and another boss that you cannot actually come to us and say, I've got an idea. Mm. And in this, again, in this DNA of the company, we have that. Mm. So we are pushing our watchmakers, and not only our watchmakers, anybody that could bring ideas about running the business better every day. Mm. And how do you keep that DNA going through the whole team? That's what I was talking about earlier in terms of what's in a brand, culture. Mm. The mm. culture is more important than anything else. Sure. Bringing people together. As I said, as a CEO of the company, I'm not the best in IT, I'm not the best in marketing. I might be the best in sales, but not okay. <laughs> but I'm not the best in uh, in uh, in uh, servicing. Mm -hmm. I'm not the best in putting movement together. I know how to make people play together in mm -hmm. the same music, which is the most important thing. And how do you do that? How do you make people play together? It's an everyday job. Every day, every day, every day. You teach people how to talk to each other. One thing that we did recently it was a funny thing. We were 140 people in a theater, and. There was one person saying some, something in some people's ear on the last row, okay, a sentence, mm. and on and on and on until the front row. So there were potentially 14 to 15 people in between the first sentence mm -hmm. and what the first sentence would look like right. at the end. Yeah. And it came back completely the opposite way. Mm. The meaning was completely reversed and it was actually stupid to even say it. Right. And that was a lesson mm. where I told them that when you talk to people, it's not what you say that matters, it's what they understand. So make special efforts to make sure that they understood exactly what you meant when you said black, yellow, blue, green. Mm. Because if you say black, yellow, blue, green, and they understand white, white, yellow, red, you're in trouble. Mm. Okay, so going back to when we went to Audio 2, we were talking about you living here in Geneva. Mm. Uh, and then going to New York and you said that you know you get really great ideas or you feel like you get the ideas in New York. So can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, it's, it's really the place where I guess the most creative. First of mm. all, I meet always a lot of people from yeah. different industries 
And I don't know why, don't ask me why, but I get extremely creative and I always come back with uh, my bag full of ideas. Yeah. No, don't ask me what they are because I won't tell you. No, you won't. No. We just have to buy lots of your watches. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so is there a process you think then? Could you reverse engineer a process to get creative? Because I have this belief that really business isn't that difficult. You've got to listen to people and um, give people a route to put good ideas into practice and then listen to the people who are buying your stuff and make sure that you're improving your stuff that, that they want, they want, and it's a loop. Um, have you got any kind of model for creativity or innovation? No, and there is no. Not, and no, I don't, and there is no exact definition because yes, you're right. I might listen to clients mm. and they would give me ideas, yeah. but I'm going to follow what they have already in mind when I would all love to think also out of the box and say, by the way, nobody has ever done this or ever asked for that. What about doing it? Mm. And for this, I don't have to listen. Yeah. I've just to be in what type of uh, mm. mindset I am at that time and say, you know what, what about this or what if? I love that notion of what if. Sure. Because I always love to, to think about bringing to the market things that were never done before. And when I say never done before, not a different color dial or not the different uh, type of pushers, but really think out of the box. Yeah. And then push our guys, actually say, could we do that? Mm. And I don't care if I hear 20 times no, mm. as long as the 21st time will be yes. Yeah. Do you think maybe it's the people? Because you said you see a lot of people. Do you think maybe people inspire you with ideas? Yeah, in different industries. I mean, I love music. Yeah. Uh, so I know a lot of people from the music world, whether the known one or the unknown. Yeah. What music do you like? Uh, pretty much everything. Yeah. A lot. I don't know. I'm not sure. From soul to hip hop to. Yeah. Uh, Classic to uh, rap to uh, rock to yeah. hard rock, not heavy metal. I'm not, not techno. I'm no. not. Okay, uh, but no. <laughs> you wanted to make those points really yeah, clear, yeah, yeah, very clear. Yeah. Uh, I love music with soul. Yeah, uh, and and every time I'm exposed to all these people, mm. something comes to my mind, mm. and yeah. that's just the way I've been my mm. entire life. Mm. Yeah, sorry to to dig there and fish, but um, I used to be an artist, and I found scenery, music, really great conversations with people, gave me inspiration to paint and to write when I was doing sort of the crazy poetry and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, just wanted to see if you had a similar experience. Mm -hmm. Is there a question I should have asked you flying all the way from London here that I have forgotten to ask? Yes. How much money do I have to spend on my lovely girlfriend Gemma <laughs> uh, to go home and to put a, the most beautiful smile on her face? Well, I believe that you don't sell watches from here, do you? It's just through your... I would sell you anything. <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> I'll have a look, because I was hoping to be able to buy one for myself. Okay. So, yeah, I like yeah, the, think about the yellow... Her. Yeah, okay, I should if be thinking about it. That's her first one. It has to be special. Oh, no, this is her second one. I already bought her a Royal Oak. You're a good boyfriend. Yeah, I know. Could I date you? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> um, Okay. Is there anything else I should have asked? No, because then it's going to become very, very brutal. Okay. <laughs> Fine. Um, this podcast is called The Disruptive Entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. Do you, do you have, what do you think the meaning of disruptive is? What does that mean to you? Not following yeah. anybody and, uh, and sometimes sh shocking people. Mm. Shocking people to the point where they would say, your idea sounds great, but it's, it scares me so much. <laughs> And at the end, being able to hold to your, to your thought and say, that's, that's what I want. And we need to do that. And it's funny because right before the interview, we're in a, a long strategic meeting day with mm -hmm. uh, four members of the board. Right. 
and I threw them an idea that yeah. could be a real revolution for the watch world. And you're not going to tell us? No F way. <laughs> um, but the first reaction was, wow, but that is a complete change of the entire way of doing business. We've been doing it for 142 years. I say, yes, it is. But I say, I'm so convinced I'm right. I'm going to put everything I have on the table say, this is it. Yeah. We found the new way of... The thing you can't tell us. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, but tell us something in the past that did that. I mean, with the 48, I've got some of your 48 mil watches. I've got the T3, I've got mm -hmm. the All-Stars. They're big. Mm -hmm. I mean, was anyone making 48 mil when you were making them? No, when we launched, I have to tell you, when we launched the, the offshore 42 millimeter in 1993, we thought about that we would make only 500 because nobody would ever buy those big chunky watches. Mm. That would be, people would not respect it for what it was. Yeah. And then 42 millimeter today is, is, is like pretty normal. Yeah. But when it came, we thought that we'd make only 500 and die with it. Yeah. That was it. So do you, do you kind of do that? If you've got this new idea, you can just make 500 and it kind of be a test. Yeah, it's not going to kill your brand, is it? You just don't make it anymore. No, but except that my idea is beyond the product. It's it's a complete, as I say, it's not an evolution, it's a revolution. Yeah. Only time will tell. Okay. If you don't see me sitting at that desk next year, not, yeah. the idea was a bad one. But <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> you're, you're prepared to take those risks? Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. That's also how disruptive I can be because yes. at the end, I don't care. If I really, if I'm really convinced about something, I'm going to put all my strength mm. in convincing people that it has to be done. Yeah. And that, yeah, I'm going to go. Mm. All in. All in. Yeah, yeah. yeah go hard or go hard home. Passions, yes. <laughs> do you read? Uh, yes, but not books. So what do you read? No, because I have to read so many magazines ah. and that or uh, reports. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't really read books. No. No. Okay. All right. It's been a pleasure. Francois, thank you very much. No, no, it was beyond pleasure. Yeah. And make sure that when Gemma gets her second watch, okay. I want you to pick you off her wearing it, please. Okay, I'll send it to you. Could we do that? Yeah. Okay, and Tom, next time your material doesn't work, you let me know in advance, we'll rent something for you here. <laughs> Even though we're in Switzerland, we're going to be okay. Tom, we love you. <laughs> thank you, Francois. Thank you. Hi, it's Rob again. And I wanted to share with you the lessons that I took away from the entire Audemars Piguet experience. So you've just listened to the interview with Francois, what a charming, charismatic legend. Uh, and it was a real experience, not just interviewing him, but the entire experience from a week before we got on the plane all the way through to finishing the interview. I was so excited to get back to the UK to share with my MD, Mark, my business partner, and then ultimately our entire progressive team, the things that you can learn from a disruptive brand that's got 142 years now of history, that still retains the family values, which Francois talks about a lot, Audemars Piguet talk about a lot, but, but you know, I can't stress enough the difference you have with a company that's founder or family owned, or still in that heritage and history with family members on the board versus you know, a publicly traded company where there's pressure to make more profit every quarter, every quarter, every quarter. Now, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. You know, there's a space for all these businesses and with high tech industries, you know, all that money is needed to fuel the growth. And hey, look, Uber are very disruptive and, you know, billions being thrown in, but it's just a different type of company. And, um, you know, as I 
had the whole experience, start to finish with Odomar's Pigay. It really struck me a few things. And I'm going to sum up these for you uh, in this sort of debrief of the Disruptive Entrepreneur Live interview. So I've got like about 25 points I've written down here. And I'm going to go through each one. I think that it's really important. For, you know, I took a long time, hours to consider this afterwards. And I think one of the things that struck me, and hey, I love money and making money in business, just like, you know, most people do when we're honest with ourselves. But it struck me that not just desiring and driving for profit has huge amount of upsides in your business. You know, for example, the buildings, uh, you know, that, that they, they make the watches in. It started with this sort of the old existing building in 1875, which has now become the museum where um, the family lived. And then they converted the sort of loft, the top room, where um, Audemars, Jules Audemars and Edouard Piguet kind of merged and did their first JV. And then, then they bought a building next door and then they built one on and built another one on and built another one on and built another one on and built one out the back. And um, now they're building a new museum out the back and a hotel out the back. And so they've stayed true to their heritage and history. But the place was so clean. It was unbelievably clean, surgically clean. Now, I know you get that with a, you know, watchmaking and precision. It's you know, not like every business isn't like that. But they, you can see so much of the profits and the love had been reinvested back in. And it immediately wanted me to go back and um, get rid of all the floor tiles in the training suite that had been covered in coffee stains and everything else. You know, and, and just um, get rid of all the paper and the mess. Now, now our values are different. You know, we're disruptive, we're progressive, we're innovative. And we're, so we're allowed to be a little bit messy. But they were so clean, everything. And, you know, it, it really just brought to my attention that if you have a vision for wanting to be doing business in 50 years time and you know it doesn't matter about doing 20% growth a quarter or a year then you can do things that make a real lasting difference all right so let's go through all the the things i observed and i think you'll get some great business and life lessons from this so it probably it's probably the most profound experience i've ever had with a brand now, you know, you've all had an experience, haven't you, with a, um, you know, a luxury brand where you thought, oh, they're a bit um, elitist or they're looking down my nose at me or, you know, oh, I don't feel worthy being in here. You've got the opposite at Odemars Piguet. You've got the opposite. Every single person, you know, there were people delivering. There were sort of, you know, cleaners. And then, of course, there was, you know, Francois himself and everyone from the, the bottom to the top of Odemars Piguet said bonjour, looked you in the eye, took time to say hello, to care about you. And uh, it, it was just unbelievable. So, you know, you didn't get that elitist, snobbish kind of feeling that you made from other luxury brands. So that was one thing, you know, I really noticed. It was thoughtful, like the details were so considered. Uh, the, the ladies that were emailing us and uh, organising our agenda from the UK weeks before um, we went, when we agreed to do the interview, you know, they were friendly, approachable, you know, they were, they were helpful. Uh, they set a really detailed agenda before we went, so it was all very clear. They helped us book the flights and get the flight times. They didn't need to do that. You know, they, they helped us get the, the hotel booked. They didn't need to do that, but they helped us with all of that. I wonder if they thought I was um, a bit bigger of an, uh, you know, a celebrity or an interviewer than, um, you know, than maybe I am. I don't know, but that's interesting. So it was passionate. Everything about them was passionate from everyone you met. It was precise. Everything was thought out. Like you, every glass was Odomar's PK brand. 
They even had the coasters that they put on before. Odomars Piguet branded. Everything was Odomars Piguet branded. Okay, so um, if you don't know Odomars Piguet, um, well, you've just listened to the audio interview, so you should, but they're... I believe they're the best watch brand in the world, but of course I'm biased. And now, if I didn't before, I did having had their experience. But you know, they're a very high-end watch luxury brand, one of the highest luxury brands in in probably you know the world. And um, you know, in terms of watch terms, I said maybe Richard Meal, maybe Patek Philippe, uh, sort of, uh, or you know, I mean, price brackets. Maybe the the two I mentioned are just slightly higher. But you know, when you pay up to a million pounds for one piece. Uh, and you know when the average piece of price of the piece is forty or fifty thousand pounds, then you know I'm not saying every company can go and invest in all these micro details and keep everything completely clean with clean with a toothbrush. If you sell peanuts and you've got twelve p margin on a pack, but you know we can all learn from each other. So they're located at Labrassus, which is almost on the border of France and Switzerland, which is it was like a through route where many of the um, watchmakers used to go from France through to Switzerland, and that's how it built. And, you know, you've got Vacheron Constantine just down the road and, you know, loads of other of the watch brands in this, you know, small, tight geographical space. All right, so a, a car was arranged to pick us up from Geneva, or the airport, to Labrassus, uh, and it's about an hour away, we were told. And the car that picked us up was a brand new Maserati Quattroporte. So immediately, you know, I've got lots of expensive cars. It's not so much that, but I mean, if you haven't, that's going to blow your mind. But even though I've, I've got, you know, I've had that experience for myself, I'm just, Tom and I are looking at each other going, is that our car? Nah, that's not our car. And immediately you see that, and the guy comes out, who's the driver, you know, their hired driver, and he looks like XKGB, warm smile, but you know, if you get into trouble, he's going to break someone with his little finger, and he's probably got a, what is it, Kalashnikov? I don't know, gun somewhere hidden. And you're told it takes an hour to get there, and he drives like James Bond through the valleys, and it takes 40 minutes. So you get there 20 minutes early, and you've already had like quite an exhilarating experience. Now, the, um, there's a specific car park space for the chauffeur car. And I didn't know if that had been hired or we were being schmoozed, or I didn't really know what it was, but that's their car. They own that car, and they've got a space specifically for that car, and that is symmetrically lined up right in front of the glass doors and the main building of Odomar's Piguet, like precision. So it's been placed there. You know, normally you might get the CEO, or you might get one of the higher-level directors with that space, but that space is for their private chauffeur car. So when you turn up, you drive in, and symmetrically you see the whole building, and it's like, wow. And you turn back, and symmetrically behind you, uh, they've, um, I don't know if they uh, bought this later or they had the land already, but the car park is over the other side of the road, and they, they own this big patch of grass. You know, I'd say, what, let's call it... 35 by 20 meters, something like that. And it's elevated and raised and it goes up into the hills and they have cut AP, their logo, into the grass and it's massive. And you see that symmetrically behind you and you know all of this, this isn't accidental. This isn't just, oh, this would be nice. This is precision, this is measured. This is reflecting the precision in their watches and everything, it's just, it was just mind blowing. Okay, when we got there, it was like, the entire 1,500 staff have been told to stop their work because Rob and Tom, king and queen, I don't know who's the queen, probably me, 
of, you know, a country are here to visit. And you felt like everyone had stopped what they're doing to come and, and greet you. Like I said, everyone said, bonjour, bonjour, bonjour. You know, it was just, it was just amazing. Um, I got to practice on my GCSE French. Où est la toilette, s'il vous plaît? All right, so we had our own tour guide. He was called Denis, and he was, you know, he, he, had, he was quite old, but, you know, really, um, it, it was like he was wearing the history of Odomar's Piguet through his body, through his soul. He had his Odomar's Piguet watch on, which I subsequently found out from Francois. You don't get given one when you're hired by AP. You have to earn it and buy it. But they're all wearing AP, so they're obviously all, um, you know, really passionate about the, about the brand. And we had an hour and a half tour. You've got macaroons in this presentation glass. You know, they're offering you coffee and drinks and chocolate every five minutes. We went around the museum. We got to you know, see the history and heritage of the brand, of the family, of the founders, where it started, how they met. There's a massive family tree. Uh, it's just, you know, and... and, and no stone was unturned. We went in and saw all their watches that they'd made from pre-Odemars Piguet all the way through to the modern day. They had about seven watches which were first, the world's thinnest movement or the world's smallest pocket watch, the world's smallest tourbillon. So, you know, the innovation and, the, and their uniqueness was throughout their museum and their history, which was fantastic. Uh, when we went to see the restorers, when we went to see the watchmakers... You know, they've got their loops, which um, I don't know what I'm doing there. <laughs> they've got uh, this sort of metal, so almost like a spring, which they wear on their head with the loop, which is the magnifying glass. And they sort of pull it over their eye and then they put it up there. So they're there working on screws, which you, you know, they're like lead filings the size of the screws. But then when you come in, they do that. No matter where they are, they stop, they stand up, they come shake your hand. They're always checking your wrist. And, you know, when they saw, I, I was wearing a Schumacher, gold Schumacher, which is um, like for me, the best watch in the world. I'm not just being biased here, but you know, it is. And, uh, you know, they're all like, wow. And, you know, they're like they're looking at your watch. Like, you know, they've made it, but they're looking at you like, wow, look at that watch you're wearing. And, you know, they give you this passionate tour. One of the chaps who took us around the restoration area is Italian and um, he's trying to improve his English. So he did like a 15 minute tour around their restoration room. They had a one, in, one out of one pocket watch, which would be, would be worth tens of millions if it was sold. Um, and, and he's practicing his sort of uh, English and, the, you know, the, his passion's just coming through. And he's wearing a vintage Audemars Piguet and, it's, you know, just every, everything. You, you just felt the passion coming through them. Then when we left to go back to the HQ, um, we were sat down. We had to wait a few minutes because they'd had a board meeting. And again, you know, more love and care and helpfulness. And when we went up to meet Francois, we went into his office first and he wasn't there for like five minutes so Tom was setting up all the audio and um it you could feel his sort of youthful vibrant slightly rebellious slightly cheeky personality in his office so there was th almost 360 degree views of the beautiful forest and landscapes and hills of um, Switzerland, of Labrassus village which apparently is normally covered in snow and he's got artifacts and signed um, gifts from Arnold Schwarzenegger and he's got um, you know, his meetings with Bill Clinton and many famous people and important people across the world, Muhammad Ali, etc. And when he came in, he was pretty casually dressed uh, and uh, like everybody else at AP, he was very thoughtful, very considerate, uh, memorised your name, memorised your partner's names, 
you know, memorize your dog's name, brought them into a, into the conversation. What amazed me about Francois and Odemars Piguet is they're, they're a family brand where I think it's the great, great granddaughter of one of the original founders is on the board. Uh, and, uh, you know, so they're very traditional and they've got this history, yet they've hired a CEO who is disruptive, he's rebellious, he's, you know, cheeky. And, um, and I just think that's a brilliant marriage. And um, I'm sure the board would say that, you know, he has brought Odemars Piguet into the 21st century. Uh, and he, yet he still really honours the values, the family nature of the business and, um, you know, the, the not chasing the quarterly profits. All right, so after we had our interview and we had a hug, we took some photos. He did say uh, he'd have to look at sponsoring my son or signing my son were his words. Uh, so um, it is one of my goals to be signed by Odemars Piguet, whether it's me or my son. That's just a childish little thing I'd like to do. All right then, so um, then he started trying to sell me a couple of watches and he said live on the podcast, as you heard, that, um, you know, I really should be buying my fiance a watch, even though she's got an Odemars Piguet already. So, you know, you heard him say that he's not the best watchmaker. He's not the best in IT. He's not the best in this. Uh, uh, but he is probably the best salesman. And, you know, he, he can put people together. And that's what a leader often does. You know, Steve Jobs, uh, Bill Gates, they were great salespeople. Of, you know, not technical, uh, you know, one-to-one salespeople, but salespeople of a vision, of a brand, uh, of selling people on, um, you know, their, their culture, and um, often the, some of the best leaders in the world are great at selling you, you know, who they are. And, and he was like that. So uh, I, he, he sold me in and I went into the private watch room, which only like a handful of people in the whole of the company have access to. It's basically like a massive private lounge, um, the most beautiful room, all um, in sort of piano black walls and high security. And it's like basically a, a safe room, I guess, if a bomb had gone off, you know, you'd have still been safe in there. And, uh, you know, we did a private sh showing and viewing of all the watches. A lot of people have been asking me what I've bought. Um, I probably shouldn't mention that live uh, on videos for security reasons. Um, also, a few of you have now been asking me what AP should you buy? Um, so I've got about eight or nine more things that I learned uh, doing, you know, going through. So I'll share them with you in a moment. But um, if you want to buy a starter Odemars Piguet, buy a, uh, a Royal Oak or a Royal Oak Offshore. Ideally, if you can get one with a limited production, they generally hold their value better. Um, you know, and the, the, the ones that um, maybe only make 200 or 500, uh, you know, they can often go up in value. You know, now it depends. If it's a watch you want to buy because you love it, then, you know, that's different from if you're trying to look to retain or even make money. Um, maybe I, you know, have a, a sort of a more private conversation with you if you want to talk about that. Um, but yeah, you know, the, the watch that's been taking a lot of um, business off people who've been buying Rolex Daytonas and things like that is the Royal Oak or the Royal Oak Offshore. Uh, and um, yeah, good place to start. All right, great. So where were we? So we spent about 50 minutes in the private showroom. They organized the car to take us back. And um, they gave us a gift bag where there was some uh, uh, an Odemars Piguet branded box of chocolates and an Odemars Piguet snow, glo snow globe in an Odemars Piguet bag and the Odemars Piguet 2016-2017 watch calendar. And, uh, you know, and off we went. And Tom and I just got in the car. Oh, when we were in the car, there was placed in the side um, an Odemars Piguet branded notebook. And I said to Mr. KGB, um, someone's left that in there. He's like, no, 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 pour toi, pour toi. So, all right, another gift, blimey. And uh, Tom and I looked at each other and went, 
wow, we did not expect that. And I think it was what they did, but it was also what they didn't tell you they were going to do, but they did over and above what you expected. So, you know, they say uh, uh, under promise, over deliver. And that was definitely the case there. And then, you know, I wasn't there for any of that, but we got all of that. All right. So we, we caught our plane and um, Tom and I were talking about it a lot and uh, various debriefs and I've been totally inspired to put some of these, pra these practices into progressive and unlimited success and the podcast. So hopefully you're going to see some improvements there. All right. So what did I learn? If you'd have been with me on the plane and in the Maserati Quattroporti and in the watch buying room, this is what I think you may have learned too. So I really got a flavor for what brand is. Obviously, you heard me ask Francois what he believes brand is, and he summed it up with um, a je ne sais quoi of 10 or 12 things. But for me, brand is everything about you. It's the family, it's the history, it's the culture, it's the minute details, it's the, the cleanliness, the positioning of what you cut in the grass, the positioning of where you park the car, how you treat people, your character, your personality coming through, the personality of you and your culture and values coming through all of your staff, the little things, the over-delivering, everything is brand. It's caring, it's treating you like an individual, treating you like you matter. That's all of those things are brand. Okay, so the next thing is passion matters, charisma matters. Now, I probably was talking about this five years ago, but I've got very much into sort of talking a lot about systems and processes of building a sustainable, unbreakable business. Uh, and it's easy to forget that if you, if you have this charisma, if, you know, if people sit with you or watch your online stuff, and they just think, I like this person. You know, they're, they're cheeky. They're, they look like they have fun. They look like they're enjoying themselves. They don't take themselves too seriously. They're a bit rebellious. They're, 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 they're brave. You know, they want to take risks. They're open. They're not hiding anything. You know, all those things that makes you charismatic and makes you a radiant person. That matters. And uh, yeah, you know, I wouldn't say I've forgotten it, but I'd say that Francois brought that back out in me because he's just, he just, that is him. And, and that is AP. And so passion matters, charisma matters. It doesn't really matter the skills you're great at and the skills you're not great at, because they are what you're great at and what you're not great at anyway. But you know, the people that change the world, the people that make the biggest difference, that leave these legacies, um, you know, that live beyond them, you, you know, people are drawn to them. So that matters. Uh, we're all salespeople with something else I learned. You know, whether you don't think you're a salesperson or you do, you are. You might not be selling widgets, you might not be selling one-to-one, -one, you might not be selling on a stage. But, you know, you're selling your passion, your enthusiasm, your brand, your culture. You're selling YAP and not any other great watch brand, because there are other great watch brands out there. You know, you're, you're selling a memory. You're selling an experience that will stay with you for the rest of your life. So we're all salespeople and we must let that salesperson out, you know, not in a pushy, sort of annoying way, but in a charismatic, radiant, memorable way. The next thing I really picked up from Odomar's P. Gay was symmetry and precision. Everything was symmetrical. Everything. The people, their clothes. You know, they, um, you know, like I said, where they position the car, where they position the, um, the logo going in the grass. They're, um, you know, they have open work watches, which are skeleton watches, you know, where you can see the movements. And, um, you know, they've got very modern looking movements in a very traditional looking watch. And symmetry and precision and the thought of everything and how it works matters certainly matters to AP. Now, hey, if they're not your brand values and you're more chaotic and disruptive, maybe like we are, then maybe some symmetry and precision doesn't matter as much, but it matters. And, you know, I'm definitely going to bring that through into our culture and brand where appropriate. And hey, I'm not trying to be me and be more them. They've just inspired me to 
to bring out more of us that is us that we I think we could be doing as well as Odomars PGA. Now we've got we're into our 11th year. We have our 10 year anniversary in January and they're into their 142nd year. This isn't about comparing. This is just about being inspired. Okay. The end-to-end experience, you know, the start isn't just when you go into the AP build building. The start was how friendly the staff were, um, you know, getting Christmas wishes from them and detailed itineraries and, you know, the car that picked us up and the driver in the car and there's water and mints and chocolate in the car. You know, the end-to-end experience from start to finish and the gifts we got at the end. And then they even replied to one of my tweets saying, you know, that they were really glad that I enjoyed the whole experience. It was end-to-end way before and way after. And that's an amazing experience, you know, that I'm really inspired to want to bring into our communities. Is It's not just when you're actually dealing with an individual. It's the entire experience. So, um, you know, you call it end-to-end, a longer experience. So the next thing is you can succeed being unique when others fail being the same. You can succeed being unique when others fail being the same. So Francois told me that the watch industry as a whole has dropped a little bit and it's been hard, um, but AP is still growing. It's growing in most of their uh, markets where it's kind of a little bit more difficult and they're not as maybe big and they've not had a problem with growth. They, um, they reduced a lot of their product lines. They haven't grown on 40,000 volume for a few years, and that would have been tempting to do, to do 50,000 and 60,000 and 80,000 pieces a year. So he's kind of, Francois almost done a Steve Jobs, you know, where he went in and got rid of a load of the products and just worked on a few. He's got rid of some of the lines and he's, he's honoring that volume. You know, you'd have heard in the interview, you know, scarcity and exclusivity is so important in a luxury brand. And as soon as you make too many of something, it's not scarce anymore. It damages the brand. You know, look what all these fakes do to, you know, I don't know, say Louis Vuitton or whatever, it damages the brand. So you can grow when the industry isn't growing by being unique. The next thing is business is a human experience. And uh, even with your autoresponder emails, even with your postal letters, even with everything that isn't a human experience, business is still a human experience. And the AP experience for me was the most human experience I have experienced with any brand ever to date. Um, Now I'm quite easy to please, but you know, I I don't want to sort of underplay you know, how, how much of an amazing experience they gave. Um, Honour your past and disrupt the future. So the thing you'd have really got listening to the interview is that he honours the 142-year history. He, honor, he knows every watch model. He knows the family history, knows the family tree. He knows the brand values and he honours that. But he disrupts the future because he says his next, his next watch is always the best watch. He's always looking to innovate. He's looking to, you know, the Royal Oak was not, it was way away from the traditional shapes and models of original Odomars Piguet watches. But it's still honouring tradition, maybe with the movements, you know, maybe with, um, I don't know, the straps or, you know, parts of the watch. But he's, they, he, are prepared to take risks and do things that are different. You know, sort of, um, when the Royal Oak was brought out, as you heard Francois say, the, the size of the case was huge compared to traditional watches, even compared to AP traditional watches. When they did the Arnold Schwarzenegger um, joint ventures or ambassador um, partnerships with the T3 and the Legacy and um, the All-Stars, you know, they're 48 millimetres, huge watches. So, you know, be prepared to disrupt the future, but still honour your brand values. Reinvest your profits. It was obvious they weren't driven by money and they weren't just driven of sucking all the money out uh, because of, you know, the huge investment in the buildings. There's going to be a hotel there, which I think I'll be staying there 364 days of the year. They're building a new museum in the ground or sort of glass spiral structure. 
Um, I'm not allowed to say any more on that because it's pretty secretive, so I won't say any more. Don't sue me. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, it's clear they're reinvesting a lot of their profits back into their business. I've always said about Progressive, you know, we keep um, three years or more living, uh, running expenses of the business work to take no sales in the bank. And um, Mark and I only ever draw 40% of the profits and we leave 60% of the retained profits and we look to reinvest it back into marketing improvements of premises, you know, all the things that continually grow and improve the overall experience of your brand. Two more then. Uh, and one is a thank you. And that is very long term time horizon. You know, the board have said to um, Francois, we don't really care about growth in the next one or two years, as long as we're still here as an important, um, relevant brand in 50 years. So, you know, if they keep doing what they're doing, honoring a, a long term time horizon, they know they'll make profits. They're not focused on profits. You know, I'm not saying they don't want to make profits. They clearly do. But they don't want to do something for the sake of one or two years that will damage their reputation or their longevity for the next 50 years. And very often you find that with the most successful brands and entrepreneurs on the planet. The longer term the time horizon, the more um, sustainable, scalable um, and long lasting the brand is and the better decisions they make. So I'd like to thank you for tuning in, whether it's a live video or you listen to the podcast. I would like to personally thank Francois, the entire Odemars Piguet team in the UK and in Labrassas. What a great experience, not just for me, but obviously all for the community members. And um, yeah, if any of you want any advice on the right AP to buy, I'm not, you know, I don't sponsor them. They don't sponsor me. I'm just passionate about it. I've been a watch collector for many years. Um, you know, I'll happily sort of help you where I can. Uh, and like I said, a good place to start is the Royal Oak or the Royal Oak Offshore. Ladies as well, you can get some older Royal Oak men's watches. Um, but, the, you know, they're, they're kind of like the right size for the ladies now. A lot of the um, Serena Williams is one of their brand ambassadors. So, yeah, happy to help where I can. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, please do share this podcast with anyone you know. Um, you know, we're really making a difference. We've got an amazing community, great friends. Dave, thanks for tuning in. Dave's a great friend and he's tuning in listen he, hey he's a very successful businessman on himself as well so you know this isn't just for sort of startups it's for anyone who wants to you know make a difference in the world so please share this podcast with anyone and everyone and um if you don't risk anything you risk everything